BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So let's take a deep dive into authoritarianism as a form of government and as a form of governance. On the line with us is Professor Ruth Ben-Ghiat. Professor Ruth Ben-Ghiat is a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University, a historian and cultural critic, a scholar on fascism and authoritarian leaders, and the author of seven books, including her latest Strongmen from Mussolini to the Present. Both her website and her Twitter handle are her name, Ruth Bengiat, B-E-N-G-H-I-A-T, dot com for her website, and put an ad at the beginning of that for her Twitter handle. Professor Bengiat, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'd like to start with just kind of a definition of terms. I think most people have some understanding of what democracy is and what a kingdom is, for example, you know, like Saudi Arabia, I mean, an absolute monarchy. But between absolute monarchy on the one hand, even absolute despotism, and democracy on the other hand, on the polar ends, and please correct me if you think those are not the polar ends, there's this weird little hybrid of strongman authoritarian leadership in countries that started out as representative democratic republics. How do we define this? What is this spectrum like? What are these kinds of government that we saw with Mussolini, for example, during World War II? So authoritarianism, most broad, is a system of governance where the executive branch comes to overwhelm and politicize and sometimes suppress the workings of a free judiciary, a free press, uh, courts, and all the other institutions of society. So authoritarian governments, in the 20th century, we had, you know, the one-party dictatorships. Today, you have authoritarians who come in through elections, and then they try to manipulate elections to stay there. So today, it's more of a continuum. Sometimes there are democratic institutions left with a little bit of you know, independence. But basically, that's authoritarianism is when the executive and the person of the leader, you have personality cults often, comes to overwhelm the rest of society. I just want to define the strongman leader, partly ironic, because as we see in the book I wrote and, and in many things unfolding in our world, sometimes these uh, male leaders who are authoritarians who also use masculinity as a way to present themselves to their people and in their relations with foreign leaders. Think of Putin, who strips his shirt off and, you know, poses as the symbol of strength, right? 
But this is also ironic because some of them are the most uh, weak and brittle and insecure leaders who are highly destructive. Well, couldn't you argue that that might be what drives them to be strong men, that they can't uh, you know, they can't deal with the loss of losing an election. They they can't deal with the loss yeah. of control. I mean, you know, the whole control freak thing usually comes out of a deep seated sense of insecurity without asking you to become a psychologist. Isn't that a piece of it? Yes. And one of the things so this is the strong man is the first book to put Trump in historical perspective. And I start with Mussolini and Hitler, and there's three ages. There's the fascist age, the age of military coups, so I read for years about coups, and then what I call new authoritarians, the people like Putin and Orban and Bolsonaro and Trump. You know, each age works in a different way, but some of the similarities I found were remarkable in personality. So all of them, they construct these systems of governance, which I call cocoons or inner sanctums because they can't stand to have any critical feedback. They need flatterers and sycophants around them. So they construct these areas of government. They often have family members like sons-in-law. There's a whole paragraph about the role of sons-in-law. This is not a good thing for them in the end because it leads them to make bad decisions. And in the end, they're very bad leaders because they're not getting critical feedback. And this is all because they have these personalities where they can't, they have a kind of manic need to control everything and everyone and even the version of reality that has to be theirs. So Mussolini provided the template for a lot of this. And his slogan was, Mussolini is always right. Mm-hmm. In Germany, wasn't it ein Volk, ein something, ein Führer? You know, one people, one yeah. nation, one Führer, one leader. And there you had, even with respect to fascist Italy, Nazi Germany kind of perfected this, where it was an even more centralized system of government. There was no king, and, you know, Mussolini had the king, and he also had the pope. <laughs> a very unusual circumstance to have Vatican City inside, another foreign country inside your country. But in Hitler's right. case, it was so extreme that his will became the law. So the law of the land was equal to the Fuhrer's will. So that's a degree of power and control that was unmatched except in Stalinist Russia at the time. And in that context, whether you're defining it as fascist or as authoritarian, doesn't Soviet communism fall into that category as well? I mean, isn't that what Joseph, I mean, Stalin was famously paranoid and, and, and continuously frightened of everybody. It's why, one of the reasons he executed so many of his, his own people. Yeah, and a lot of the dynamics were also provided by communism, starting with personality cults. Stalin and Mussolini had the two kind of initial personality cults. And in my book, I'm a historian of fascism for many years, and so I chose to focus on mostly right-wing authoritarians and show the lineage from the fascists to Pinochet in Chile and Franco in Spain. But I talk about communists throughout because there were a lot of interchanges, like Ceausescu in Romania influenced Mobutu in the Congo, and Mobutu was a right-wing authoritarian. I chose to have this one lineage because it, otherwise it becomes an encyclopedia. But the left and the right have done many of the same things in their pursuit of authoritarianism. Right. In that context, I, I have always thought of Soviet Russia, certainly post-Lenin Soviet Russia, as authoritarian state is essentially a variation on a fascist state, although the old fascist definition of the merger of corporate and state interests uh, that Mussolini was fond of 
kind of blows that up. Where do the bully boys in the streets beating people up, uh, whether it's the beer halls in Munich in the 30s or in the 20s, actually, late 20s, or whether it's uh, what we saw in Washington, D.C. this weekend, where do they fit in this scheme? Every authoritarian needs a regular army, at least the regular armed forces, but they also need various forms of paramilitaries. Mussolini was the first with squadras, and then he institutionalized them and made them the militia. But when people are trying to gain power, and even as we see uh, and consolidate their power, they usually appeal to and energize these loose militia groupings and far-right groups, and this has happened over and over in history. And this is what Trump did from the very beginning. One of my very first op-eds about Trump for CNN was inspired by him retweeting neo-Nazi propaganda. Wow. We're speaking with Professor Ruth Ben-Ghiat. She's going to be with us for the hour, doing a deep dive into authoritarianism, fascism, this whole spectrum of, of right-wingism that we have just had a very, very close encounter with. Well, we still are. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So, Ruth, when Madison and his buddies were putting together the Constitution, one of the things that they had seen repeatedly throughout European history was military coups, militaries overthrowing governments, you know, whether they were kingdoms or fledgling democratic attempts. And it's one of the reasons why they made sure that the commander in chief of the military was a civilian. And it's also mm -hmm. the reason that I think it was in the 1930s, might have been a little later than that, it might have been post World War II, you perhaps know that we actually put into law that the head of the Department of Defense has to be a civilian or at least 10 years out from the military. They dropped that down to seven years out, I think, in the 50s. Is it our civilian control of the military that saved us from the military or the traditions within our military that saved us from Donald Trump using the military against us, you know, expanding what he did in Washington, D.C., nationwide, or what he did here in Portland, Oregon, for that matter? Or was the military made more vulnerable by the fact that he was able to install his toadies in its leadership? And now he's decapitated much of the senior leadership of the Defense Department and installed toadies. And everybody's a little nervous about where, yeah. where that's going to go. What, please speak to all that. At the time in the summer, I saw, because I've been tracking the military-Trump relationship for some time because I worked on military coups. And... I saw what was going on with Barr energizing all the, also with law enforcement, but using the military's props and having the, you know, troops come in and warehouse outside the Capitol. I thought that all of that would be a rehearsal for election time and other things. The Department of Defense, you know, at one point in 2019, uh, tweeted to civilians, could they identify unused urban tunnels, and I immediately thought, uh-oh, counterinsurgency, you know, Krapner insurgency hmm. warfare. And what I see Trump is, uh, from my perspective of studying authoritarians, is he was really trying to bring the war against insurgents home, and he, as he saw in Portland and other places, he started identifying protesters, civil rights, you know, organizers, dissenters as domestic terrorists and starting to make them political enemies. And this is one of the main things when we think about the legacy of the Trump era. He's not gone yet. 
but he, he to the old enemies, the racial enemies of African Americans and Muslims, he added new enemies. And this, there are precedents, the Cold War and other times in American history. But being someone who didn't agree with them made you now a political enemy. Being a protester made you a political enemy. So I saw this in a very dim light. And what was so interesting is you saw the limits what would be tolerated in America because he overplayed his hand in Lafayette Square and he pissed off you know, General Milley by making him a prop. And so this Thank came God. back to haunt him. Yeah, because he, what was really terrifying about recent events is that he was, of course, trying the electoral maneuvers, but he also was exploring military options. Yeah, this is uh, chilling stuff. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. We're speaking with uh, Professor Ruth Ben-Ghiat, who is the author of seven books, most recently Strongmen, from Mussolini to the present. Professor, we were just talking during the break about how Lafayette Square was basically, I think Trump and Bill Barr thought of it as a dress rehearsal for what they might do during the elections. What blew that up was General Milley apologizing and the military going, whoa, you know, and the helicopters and everything, you know, everybody recalibrating their understanding of what's going on. How close do you think we were to a military coup or the possibility that Trump would attempt to lead a military coup a la Erdogan or somebody like that or El Sisi? He clearly was exploring the military option because this is why out of the blue, quote unquote, General Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, came and said, you know, made a declaration that the uh, military, the armed forces would obey the Constitution and not, quote, an individual. And this is clearly Trump. So the fact that he said this means that this option was being explored and had been set up, indeed, explored on the ground. Remember all the unmarked, also not only the regular military, but these other kinds of police that the public learned about for the first time. And he's been waging psychological warfare for a very long time on Americans. And the people around him and him, he, they know how to do this. They've been doing this for decades. But that whole display, this political theater of um, kind of aggression that we saw in the summer with these troops assembled that nobody knew quite who they were, this is classic psychological warfare. So then it was supposed to lead to, you know, exploring the use of actual troops during the election. And, of course, had there been huge protests during the election, they were poised to know how to put them down. I also want to mention on the theme of political enemies that one thing that was new from the summer was the assault and detention of hundreds of journalists. I wrote an op-ed for CNN called How Journalists Become Hate Objects. 
And this has been set up, of course, by Trump demonizing the press for years. But this is also part of it, because you can't be neutral for authoritarians. You're either with them or you're against them. So the idea of journalists who are there as observers to cover and you know, report on it, it doesn't work for people like Donald Trump. And thus, he had the police attacking journalists as well. I struggle to understand the rationale for this. The rationale for kingdoms historically has been continuity, stability, um, some sort of either genetic superiority or, uh, you know, a blessing from God. But there was at least a rationalization. There was a structure there. I mean, you know, we still have kingdoms. You know, the United Kingdom is still a kingdom. The rationale for Calvinism, in other words, uh, oligarchy, rich people basically ruling everything. John Calvin's idea that, you know, we're all born sinful and we have to figure out how God is telling us who are the good ones among us. Oh, it must be the ones that he's blessed with riches. They should be running the show. We all are familiar with the rationalizations or rationales or, or reasons for representative constitutionally limited democratic republic for what we call democracy or our republican form of government. But Outside of, you know, it got snatched from us and now he's got it and he's in charge. Is there a structural rationalization for strongman government? Well, yeah, it's changed over a century. And so I really, as a historian, I wanted to really differentiate what happens in the fascist era and military coups in today. So in the fascist era, there's some of the same things. I identify these tools of rule, which is propaganda, corruption, very important, uh, violence and machismo and the myth of national greatness. But it always ended in the fascist years with territorial expansion. So that becomes having an empire becomes a big justification, right? In our day, there's not as much of that, although Putin is engaging in it. But having power for power's sake and turning the uh, public office into a vehicle of private enrichment, so you have kleptocracy, like in Putin's Russia, that's very important. And that's exactly what Donald Trump did. And I really see Trump, he was never there to govern as a Democratic small-D president. He's totally different than anybody else, and he conforms to the authoritarian playbook. So his goals were public welfare. He couldn't care less. He doesn't, I've been saying this since March, he doesn't care if Americans live or die. It's just there's no interest to him. He truly matches the very dim and bleak authoritarian mentality that way. His goals were, number one, to make money for Trump organization. And that's why he's been golfing one out of every three days he visits Trump properties. When people say he's so bored, he's so lazy and incompetent, it's that his goals have been different. He's worked really hard at that. He's worked really hard at propaganda, you know, tweeting over 100 uh, times in one day, building up his personality cult because you have to keep people loyal to you, right? And then you have that structure of government we talked about before where only loyalists can be around you. And spreading hatred so that Americans will be polarized. When I asked you about the rationale for authoritarianism, essentially, your answer embodied all the reasons why an authoritarian strongman would want to be one or how they would be one. For the average person, the average, you know, I mean, you've got 70 some odd million people who voted for Donald Trump. What is their rationalization? What is the, what is the story that he has sold them that causes them to say, yeah, let's put this guy back in office? It's the same 
same story as we've been told for a hundred years, starting when Mussolini claimed he, that Italy had been humiliated and he had this victim complex and he was going to save the nation. And they use the same tools, the propaganda, and they have these kind of personality cults that rise around them. So this is very important because Donald Trump was very savvy at being what he felt he needed to be to the people to get votes. And many of these men come up with a background in journalism or communications or entertainment, which is really important, so they will be what you need them to be. So Donald Trump started with the America first, and America's been victimized, and only I can fix it. And the other thing they do that's really compelling and it makes people attached to them early on and be loyal to them is that they don't just represent the nation like a Democratic small-D leader. They embody the nation. So they become the vessel of the nation's you know, destiny and greatness. American Great Again I have a whole chapter on myth of national greatness because they all do this. And so they become the embodiment of the nation and thus they take the hit for the nation. They become the victim of plots and conspiracy theories and witch hunts. He used all these tools and, you know, Berlusconi used witch hunt. Erdogan talks about witch hunt. Mussolini used to complain he was a victim. So it's very, very convincing to people because once they believe in him, they will believe whatever he says. And once these personality cults kind of take hold, history shows it's really hard to get rid of them, even when they do criminal mismanagement, disasters. And so we've seen this with Trump. How, you know, it doesn't make sense to many people that he kept over 70 million votes. He got more votes in 2020 than 2016. But that's how it works over and over again. And so the book was written to kind of make sense as much as we make sense of this of where we are in this long history. So if he's exploiting our salvationistic worldview, uh, <laughs> and there's a, literally, a, a Jesus came to save us all from, from sin, right? From God's wrath or from our own incompetence or whatever, is this kind of somebody will save us stuff is deeply embedded in our culture. Yeah. And, and not so much in some of the older pre-kingdom cultures, you know, the tribal cultures that still exist around the world today, that, you know, they tend not to be salvationistic cultures. But if that's so deeply embedded in our psyches and in our culture and frankly in our body politic, how best do we respond when a leader like Trump comes along and says, okay, I'm your savior. I'm the guy who's going to save you. Yeah, it's very difficult and it's, and it's frustrating to many people because in fact, the people who are claimed as the saviors are like the least likely, most likely people. For example, and this started with Mussolini, who was a sexual assaulter. He had a criminal record. He was an atheist, such an atheist, started out as a socialist. But he was the one who was acclaimed by the Catholic Church and made the deal with the Catholic Church that created Vatican City as an independent, as we know it today. So when Donald Trump came along and and he makes this very transactional alliance with evangelicals and also Orthodox Jews. And they've been very well served by him. They've gotten a lot from him. And so they acclaim him as their, by God's will, to rule the nation. These strong men, so to speak, they channel these archetypes that are very old, these male archetypes, of the savior, the protector, the victim. In fact, Berlusconi in Italy 
who didn't wreck democracy, so he's like Trump, but he exerted an authoritarian style rule. He used to say that he was the Jesus Christ of Italian politics. By that, he meant both that he was going to save Italy from the left, but he also was taking the hit for it. He was the martyr. So when all these things happen and they conform so closely to everything I studied, I, I was just... It can happen anywhere. This is one of the lessons. No culture is immune to this. So if Joe Biden comes along as president, which he will do presumably on January 20th, and he fails to say, I'm going to save you explicitly or even strongly implicitly, but instead says, you know, we're all going to work together and we're going to get there and I'm not the big guy here. It's, it's us. It's we, not me. You know, that kind of stuff, which was a, one of Bernie's slogans, actually, for a while. Is that a, a sufficiently strong response to authoritarianism to cause people to say, OK, we'll abandon the, the authoritarian and bind ourselves to this leader or this party or this movement or this worldview? How much has Trump altered our political landscape in terms of what it means to be a successful politician going forward? And is it possible for us to flush that brush with authoritarianism out of our system in a relatively short period of time? There's a lot in that question, but I don't think that uh, Biden is not looking for people to bind to him because he's not an authoritarian. Those are things that... If you want to look in the future and around and say, who's acting like an authoritarian, if they're not doing this loyalty oath and the victimhood, there's very clear signs of who these people are early on. We just, we, over and over, people don't know, they don't pay attention, or they think they're crazy. So Biden's not going to try and have people bind to him because uh, Democrats with a small b, they're not interested in obedience. They're interested, hopefully, in civil society and collaboration. They represent the nation, but they don't have a proprietary uh, conception of office like Trump did. So in terms of fleshing it out of the system, one of the hard truths we have to look at is, uh, is that the GOP is, has departed from democratic political culture. They are authoritarian party. Their political culture is that of authoritarianism now. And that might seem like a very strong statement, but it's also backed up by these new comparative politics studies. They've been coming out since 2016. They took the rhetoric and platforms of the GOP and put them in the context of global parties. And guess where the GOP lines up? It's not conservative parties. It's like far-right parties, like those of Erdogan in Turkey and Modi in India. So we're looking at an organism backed by the, the right-wing media universe that traffics in conspiracy theories, does not allow opponents, the idea of opponents that you disagree with but you respect, that's been out the window for some time. And that's why Trump was able to do the locker-up thing and find support. The same with the press. That's why I was talking about the press becoming a political enemy. You lock them up. But that mentality of lock it up is not a democratic mentality. So. Trump has engineered a shift of political culture, and he's legitimized things that were already in the air. And Biden and Harris have to be very vigilant in pushing back at this. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Stick around. We'll be right back in our conversation with Professor Ruth Benjia. 
So if Trump has transformed the Republican Party into an authoritarian party, I read Tom Cotton's op-ed in the New York Times a while back, in a month or so ago, basically praising police in the streets. And it just seemed to me like a fascist screed. Uh, maybe I'm overreacting, but he is, uh, you know, probably in the top five in line for, for the GOP in 2024. How does the Republican Party recover from this? You know, I see these guys as they're kind of like earthquakes and or volcanoes. We can use whatever image we want. But when they pass through, and sometimes they stay a really long time, the political landscape is never the same. And the parties, historically speaking, the parties that back these people, don't, after they go, and none of them, you know, have a good end, they never leave office voluntarily, the parties are never the same. Sometimes, as in the fascist era, they're outlawed, they're dissolved. Mobutu's party was like, the, like the Nazis. Also. Yeah, and, and the Nazis, one of the saddest things for the society is that it ended with mass suicides, too. 10 to 20 percent of all the armed forces, the top brass, committed suicide. So it became a death cult. And their genius, these men, is to get people to act against their own interests, which is why I shed a tear looking at these people not wearing masks and going to Trump's rallies and women who... You know, a woman said, I'd wade through a sea of COVID to protect Trump. They fall for it, and only too late do they realize how destructive these men are for society. That's one of the sad lessons, because these men actually despise the people they rule, and they think of them as suckers. And Trump's been trying to extract money from his followers. He's continuing to do that. I bet he's going to have a counter-inaugural event where he's going to, he's been, you know, advertising to get money from them because you have to just the source of money and adulation. And it's hard to dissolve this kind of culture. So what will happen to the GOP? It could, well, already we've seen the never Trumpers. A lot of people have exited who were more classic conservatives. So the party is a little more splintered. But it's going to take on this kind of far, settle into this far right farther right, you know, identity it now has, because it worked with voters, the thing. They retained all these voters. And Ivanka Trump's going to run for Senate. She's being groomed as a world leader for many years now. Uh, Trump's been inserting her into world leader photos. Like in 2019, she was, this is crazy. I was totally distressed at seeing this. She was inserted into the group of 20 world leader photo. And she wasn't on, you know, on the sidelines. She was in the center with her father. So they're grooming her. So the GOP will continue on its way, but it's going to make governing very difficult for Biden and Harris. Yeah, I think so. Professor, we're looking at the Republican Party. You've got Ivanka Trump, who is moving. She and Jared are moving to this uh, private island off the coast of Florida. There is talk that she's going to try to primary Marco Rubio, you know, next year, basically, and run for the United States Senate. Don Jr., there's talk that he's going to get into politics, perhaps from North Carolina or some other that will allow that sort of jump in at the last minute carpetbagger thing. I got five emails since six o'clock this morning from Donald Trump or from Rona McDaniel 
or from, uh, I got one from Don Jr. I mean, you know, I'm getting all these emails asking for money to save Georgia. And when you click on them, what you discover is 75% of the money is going to Donald Trump's slush fund, his own private super PAC that he gets to keep. And 25% is going to the RNC to do whatever they want with. I mean, you know, it's just money for Rona Romney McDaniel. How does the Republican Party come back from this You've got folks like Steve Schmidt out there, you know, the, the Never Trumpers, the, the Lincoln Project folks, saying basically we have to burn the Republican Party to the ground and start over, perhaps with, you know, even with a new name. I mean, uh, what does history tell us about how countries re, 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 recover from strongman leaders' authoritarianism? Yeah, I mean, the Republican Party, many of them don't want to come back because it worked. Trump got more votes in 2020 than 2016. And their product, which is racism and and repression of, you know, non-white votes and all the other things, has worked. Now, how much of this is going to be linked to Trump himself, I'm unsure, but that's why the kids are going to get into politics um, with Ivanka, and she will run for president, I'm pretty sure, one day she's already being marketed as such. Some people say they'll be, you know, yeah, Trump is not somebody who's going to give up all of these gains. He can still fleece his borders into funding, so he's not going to give any of that up. And I think he's going to function as a kind of shadow president trying to delegitimize the Biden administration. I see it as a potentially very dangerous situation in the next years where they will use psychological warfare, everything else they've been setting up for now five years. What the GOP will do with this, how far they will continue to go for Trump when he's not in power, remains to be seen. And these are politicians, so if the brand so far keeps working for them of authoritarian rule, they will keep it up. If it doesn't, they may become more moderate. Some people say there might be a new party formed from never-Trumpers. I have no idea about that. But historically, these parties don't do very well. But we have an unusual system because we only have two giant parties. Many other places that had authoritarians had more parties and a different system. So they had a parliamentary system. What is the role of the billionaires in this? Uh, Robert Mercer and Rebecca Mercer, I, I believe that they're behind this new uh, you know, right-wing parlor you know, social media site. They funded back in 2016 the whole Cambridge Analytica thing that worked with Zuckerberg and Facebook to get Trump in the White House in the first place, you know, along with a few Russian trolls. What is the role of the, of the institutional power structure in the United States? Yeah, I think... Some of these big billionaires, they, you know, they are the powers that persist. The small politicians come and go, and they persist, backing whoever will meet their goals. And and Trump's been very good about, again, this is where these men like Trump are amoral, and they have no principle. Trump wasn't a lifelong Republican. He will go with whoever will give him the best deal and funding, et cetera. So he was very good about allying some of them. But I think that to protect democracy in the next years, we have to really take the power of social media more carefully because Trump, you know, was co-elected by Facebook in a sense. And he learned his team used Facebook in a completely different way than Hillary Clinton did. It was like an e-commerce model. Andrew Moran, since the New Yorker, wrote a really good article on this. 
they quoted one social media strategist as saying, well, it could have been sneakers we were selling, but we were selling Trump. And they placed tens right. of millions of ads. And the Hillary Clinton campaign only had 65,000 ads. <laughs> so they were playing a totally hmm. different game, which depended on the cooperation of Facebook. And so if you take that example, and also how Trump wouldn't be Trump without Twitter. And I have a chat, so my chapters in the book all go over 100 years, so the reader can see what stayed the same, what changed. So one thing that's the same is they all have direct communication channels with the people. So Mussolini used newsreels, Hitler had radio, Trump had Twitter. But in the, in the old-fashioned thing, these were state-controlled, right, in the dictatorship. Today, it depends on partnerships with billionaires and with billionaires-owned social media companies. So unless we broaden our democracy protection perspective to include what to do about these actors, it's going to be difficult to rein in the future Trump. Thank you so much for spending this hour with us, Professor Ben Diat. I really appreciate it. It's great, been great talking to you. Likewise. Thank you. And just a reminder, her book is Strongman, her most recent book, Strongman from Mussolini to the Present, as well as numerous others and articles, mostly published over the CNN. You'll find just some great stuff. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Megan Hatcher-Mays is with us talking about democracy and indivisible and all that other stuff, all that other good stuff that uh, kind of all ties together. Indivisible.org, of course, is the website. Megan, I referenced this earlier, but we never really did this uh, deep dive into it. Facebook, and I realize Facebook is not unique in this. Uh, Twitter does the same thing. And probably other social media does as well, but they're they're the, the giant, you know, and Facebook owns a bunch of other ones, Instagram and whatnot that do the same thing. Their algorithms, for example, on both Facebook and Twitter in the last, I don't know, five, six months, I've gone in search of all those right wingers and their right wing memes, and I can't find them. Or it's really hard to find them because once Facebook figures out that I'm a liberal, all they push to me is, even in my own family, I'm not hearing from the right wingers in my own family that I'm following. I mean, they get demoted. And what this produces is not only an enhanced or an increased polarization in our society, but it also causes people, whether they're on the right or the left, and the ones on the right with, you know, running around with their guns are the ones that concern me the most, frankly, but I think that this is poison right across the board. It causes us all to think that our little point of view and our little circle of family and friends represents the majority opinion in America. A, do you think that my analysis, diagnosis, whatever you want to call it, is accurate? And if so, B, what do we do about this? And I'm not talking about, you know, do we break up Facebook, although feel free. But <laughs> how do we deal with, how, how do you talk to family and friends when their entire universe of information and data and their entire social support network is all self-reinforcing within one particular political perspective? Yeah, it's really hard. You know, I don't know that there's a silver bullet. I mean, I think, you know, it's difficult to kind of, fully figure out how to solve this issue. I mean, I think that they kind of overcorrected. They got they got criticized for not showing enough conservative viewpoints, and then they overcorrected. So now when you look at the top 10 things that are on Facebook, it's like super conservative 
talk show hosts, super conservative websites. And so that kind of tipped. Might have to do with Mark Zuckerberg having private dinners with Donald Trump at the White House. Yes. Yes. And he hired a lot of GOP strategists and lobbyists to come work for Facebook. He really leaned into the conservative world a little bit there. And so I think, you know, it's really difficult to know how to solve the issue. I mean, I think real life conversations have been shown to be like the most effective to kind of pull people back from the edge a little bit. But I think what we're seeing is, you know, a little bit of confirmation bias where people feel really strongly that they've gotten a raw deal. And when they go on Facebook and see a headline that matches how they feel about something, it's really resonant. And it's hard to undo that, especially since, you know, we've been talking about this this whole show, like how do Democrats break through? You know, I think this is an ongoing conversation for the future of the party is how do you build up that trust between Democrats and um, voters again? Because a lot of voters actually like progressive ideas as long as you don't characterize them as progressive or democratic ideas. And I think a lot of that is kind of intertwined with social media and Fox News and all of these sources that, um, you know, go after Democrats as people, but then that has the effect of making their ideas seem suspicious. Which raises a correlate question, which is, I saw on Fox News, uh, and I think it was four or five days before the election, a poll that showed that 71% of Americans, if I'm remembering this correctly, I might be, it might have been 72, but it was over 70% of Americans are supportive of a national single-payer health care system. Yeah. You know, that, I mean, if you don't call it Medicare for all, or if you don't call it Bernie Sanders program, 71% of Americans support it, including a majority of Republicans. And Fox News, for God's sake, reported this. <laughs> and we still can't get Democrats, a lot of Democrats, to say, yeah, I'm in favor of a public option. Um, yeah. What does this say about our political system? What, and, and, and how, you know, what's Indivisible doing about this? And I, don't, and I don't mean to cast this in some kind of savior complex, like we're expecting you guys to save us from this. <laughs> What is it that we have to do as well to make sure that that not only does this dialogue happen in the public, you know, the old Franklin Roosevelt saying, yes, I like that idea, make me do it, that this actually happens and that our politicians get it, how important it is that this really happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of different layers. One is, you know, kind of once you, uh, the way that we think about it is dealing with structural democracy reform is kind of the key to unlock all the other issues that we care about as progressives. So once you get money out of politics, once you make it easier for people to vote, you know, once you add in election security and all these other protections that actually protect our democracy from a lot of um, corporate interference or other types of interference, that's when you can start to have start to have actual real conversations about policy because then elected officials are no longer beholden to pharmaceutical companies or um, hospital or for-profit hospitals or, you know, insurance companies and what have you, then you can start to have real conversations about what's best for people. And we can't have that right now because our democracy doesn't work right. It was designed poorly and ended up giving up a lot of power to a very small group of people. So first you have to change that. Then you can start to deal with some of these other things. And I think where Indivisible comes in is, one, pushing for those structural democracy reforms. And then two, making sure Democrats know that one that we're paying attention. I love what you just said. I love that FDR quote that you just used. Make me do it. That's what we're all about. It's like, look, you don't need to be afraid. <laughs> 
we're going to support you if you do this. And then if you don't, we're going to support somebody who will. And so I think where um, AOC has been a real breath of fresh air in the Democratic Party is that she wasn't afraid to challenge somebody who maybe got a little too comfortable in the establishment, the Democratic establishment. And she won. And I think that's true for lots of other folks in the squad as well. Ayanna Presley also defeated a Democratic challenger. So if Democrats won't follow what their constituents want them to do, there there will be consequences for that, you know, which is getting primaries. That's kind of how it works. And I think for a long time, Democrats were afraid to do it. A lot of folks, especially in New York, where AOC ran, a lot of people were waiting their turn. And she didn't. She, she ran for it. She went for it. She ran on big ideas and she, and she beat the incumbent. And that's possible. It's possible to do that if Democrats sort of these more establishment Democrats, more centrist or moderate Democrats won't do what they're hearing their constituents say they want, then that opens the door for primary challenge. Well, there's there's other possibilities as well. I mean, you know, the first of all, to deal with the Senate. When Abraham Lincoln yeah. was president, he was very concerned that after Reconstruction, he may end up with a Senate that was in the control of, of Democrats, of former slave advocate Southern Democrats. At that point in time, my recollection is it took 118,000 people in a territory to qualify that territory for statehood. And Nevada had something like 17,000 re- residents, you know, uh, non-Indian residents. But Lincoln made it a state anyway because he needed two, two Republican senators. And then mm. in uh, 1898 or 1889, as I recall, Benjamin Harrison was president, another Republican president. And he had the same problem. You know, the Democrats were rising in power again in the Senate. So the Dakota Territory, which was one chunk of land, which had a total of fewer than 100,000 residents. My recollection is it was around 20 some odd thousand and 30 or 40 some odd thousand, you know, south and north. Benjamin Harrison, President Harrison, split that into two and made it two states, South and North Dakota, and got them both pushed through Congress uh, just to give himself four more Republican senators. So it's not like we haven't done this before for purely political purposes. In fact, I would argue that's how it's always been done. So why aren't we talking about Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C.? Yes, I've got a lot of thoughts for the District of Columbia, where I live. So for personal reasons, I would love D.C. to become a state. But, you know, as you had mentioned, you know, it's always been very political to turn different territories into states. And it's almost always been the case that territories have become states because whoever was in charge at the time needed more uh, political capital. But now D.C. is basically, well, not now, historically, it's been the case that D.C. is being denied full representation in Congress because of our demographics and because of our politics. You know, D.C. is majority non-white, majority people of color in the city, and we are overwhelmingly Democratic city. I think Hillary Clinton won by like 94 percent. Uh, in 2016, hmm. and I think Joe Biden was right up there as well. Yeah, so um, so we have historically been denied both for um, pol- political reasons and both for demographics, and it's just, it's not right. So fixing that problem would obviously enfranchise hundreds of thousands of D.C. residents, but it would also fundamentally change the makeup of the Senate to make it more representative of the country as a whole. So we're basically at, held at the whims of minority rule, and if you made D.C. a state, we got two new senators that you'd start to undo that problem. Um, Puerto Rico, I know, just had a referendum. I think there were, you know, both statehood referendums in Puerto Rico can be kind of messy, but if they want to be a state, uh, that would be fantastic. That would also go a long way towards 
um, making our the United States Senate a lot more representative of the people and not just the land. <laughs> is this something that Indivisible is taking on? And if so, what are the contours of the campaign and how can individual people pitch in? Yeah, totally. So uh, statehood and democracy reform in general and statehood in particular are going to be big, big priorities for us next year. For all the reasons I just mentioned, it would go a very long way towards fixing the Senate, which is sort of designed to give a lot of power to a small group of people. That should not be the case. So we're going to be fighting really hard to get H.R. 51 for the 51st state passed in the House again, working with my old boss, Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton, who does not have a vote in the House, but who has championed this bill every year since she was elected. So that's what we're going to be fighting for. I think if people want to get involved, definitely go to our website, indivisible.org. You can get some talking points on statehood and what you can ask your member of Congress to do. Congresswoman Norton has been trying to get every single Democrat signed on to her statehood bill as an original co-sponsor. So you can check and see if your member of Congress is on the bill or has pledged to be on the bill for next Congress. And there's actually a few Democrats in the Senate who have not signed on to the statehood bill in the Senate. Really? So if you're, yes. So if your senator is Joe Manchin, Kirsten Cinema, Mark Kelly, <laughs> give them a call and see if they will join as a co-sponsor. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, you got it. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is The Deep History of Ourselves, The Four Billion Year History of How We Got Conscious Brains by Joseph Ledoux. This is from the prologue, Why on Earth? The Deep History of Ourselves explores the place of human beings in the nearly four billion year long history of life. When I mentioned to a friend that I was writing such a book, she asked, why on earth are you taking on such a project? Part of the answer to my friend's question is that if we really want to understand human nature, we have to understand its evolutionary history. Our behavior is part of our biology, and as the evolutionary biologist Theodosius Dobzhansky once said, nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. That behavior and evolution are interrelated is hardly a novel idea. Darwin emphasized it, as did pioneering uh, ethnologists such as Nico Tinger, Tingbergen and Conrad Lorenz. The behaviorists who dominated psychology in the first half of the 20th century paid little attention to evolution, but most contemporary psychologists and neuroscientists accept it as a key factor. Most efforts to understand the evolution of behavior, especially in neuroscience, typically focus on the relationship between closely related groups, such as humans and other mammals. There are obvious reasons to do so. For example, since the brain controls behavior, 
studies of how such brains or how brains evolved in such groups help under help us understand the evolution of their respective behavioral repertoire and also ours. But there's also good reason to look deeper. For example, research comparing mammals, often rodents, and invertebrates such as fly and worms, are showing results that show the connection between these and also are helping reveal how memory works in us. In this book, I've opted to dive even deeper, in fact, very deep, all the way back to the beginning of life and even to the so-called prebiotic chemical conditions of the earth, which made biology and hence life possible. I've always been casually interested in the evolution of brain and behavior, but never pursued the topic with such vigor. Then in 2009, I spent some time in Cambridge on sabbatical and became friendly with Seth Grant, a neurobiologist who I first met while he was a postdoc uptown working in Nobel laureate Eric Kandel's lab at Columbia. While there, he began researching the evolution of genes involved in synaptic plasticity to better understand the biological mechanisms of learning and memory and was continuing this line of work at Cambridge. Seth found parallels in plasticity-related genes between rodents and sea slugs, suggesting that may, they may each have inherited the ability to learn from a common ancestor that lived hundreds of millions of years ago. But even more interesting, some of the same genes exist in single-cell protozoa. That's relevant, since animals in current-day protozoa share a common ancestor that lived over a billion years ago. Some of the learning genes, learning-related genes in our nervous system, may therefore come to us via such microbial ancestors. If you know anything about protozoa, you may be scratching your head regarding these findings. Most people, if they think about it at all, think of behavior, and especially learned behavior, as the product of a nervous system. But protozoa, being single-celled organisms, don't have nervous systems, since that requires special cells, neurons, and they only possess one all-purpose cell. Yet they have a robust behavioral life. They swim away from harmful chemicals and toward useful ones, and they even use past experience to guide their present responses, suggesting that they have the ability to both learn and remember. The logical conclusion is that behavior, learning, and memory don't actually require a nervous system. This was eye-opening to me, so I did a little research to see what was known about the behavioral capacities of single-cell organisms. When animals engage in defensive energy management, fluid balance, and reproductive behaviors by freezing, fleeing, eating, drinking, and mating, scientists and laypeople often describe these activities as an expression of underlying psychological states, consciously felt experiences such as fear, hunger, thirst, and sexual pleasure. In doing so, we effectively project our own experiences onto these organisms. Given how ancient these behaviors are and how they arose long before nervous systems, we should probably be more judicious in making such attributions based on our mental states. And then he continues, The Deep History of Ourselves, The Four Billion Year Story of How We Got Conscious Brains by Joseph Ledoux. The Hartman Report is a free daily podcast, seven days a week, and you can find our entire three-hour podcast over at TomHartman.com. We are talking with Megan Hatcher-Mays, uh, the Director of Democracy Policy at Indivisible.org. 
And Megan, you and I were just talking about what do we do about getting statehood, at the very least for Washington, D.C., and maybe even for Puerto Rico. If you want to just summarize that in a sentence or so and and how people can find out what's going on over at Indivisible.org and which Democrats have not yet signed on. Yes. Congresswoman Norton, who represents the District of Columbia, she's trying to get every single Democrat in the House signed on as an original co-sponsor of that bill. So you can go and check and see if your member of Congress has already signed on or if they might need a little bit of needling to sign on or to pledge to sign on when she introduces the bill next Congress. And there's also three senators, I believe, who are not in the, in the Senate. Uh, who are not co-sponsors of the D.C. statehood bill in the Senate, and they are Joe Manchin, uh, Angus King, Kirsten Sinema, and Mark Kelly. So there's actually four, sorry. So if those are four people, any of them are your senators, please give them a call. Have them join. Statehood for D.C. would be fantastic. It would be a huge victory for racial justice and also for our democracy because it would go a long way towards making your Senate more representative. Another option for changing the this bizarre situation where California with, what is it, 38 million people has the same mm-hmm. number of senators as Wyoming with uh, 800,000. Uh, correct my numbers mm-hmm. if I'm wrong, but uh, it's in that neighborhood. That sounds anyway. about right. Yeah, would be for uh, California to split into two or three states, New York City to separate and become its own state. Arguably, Texas and Florida could do the same. I'm assuming that those are just dead in the water because of, you know, within these states, you've got this sense of citizenship that's just not going to go for that. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the keystone for any statehood movement, and this goes back, you know, for the entire history of our nation, you know, we were saying that every state is admitted for political reasons, which is true. But, uh, you know, the keystone of, of an admissions process is that the citizens of that territory want to be a state that they have determined for themselves that that's what they want. So if it were the case that um, folks in, say, San Francisco or parts of Northern California wanted to split off and become their own state and they went through the whole process of showing the majority of folks wanted to do that, then, yeah, they should pursue it. Or if Manhattan wanted to secede from the rest of the state of New York, it's all about what the people who live there want. And that's true for Puerto Rico as well, if that's what they determine for themselves. Yeah. Yeah, I just don't see it happening. Which brings us to the Electoral College. Uh, The last Republican who ran for president, uh, who is not already president, the last Republican who ran for president and won a majority of the popular vote in the United States was George Herbert Walker Bush in 1988. Um, That's crazy. We've had two Republican presidents since then, and neither one of them were elected by the majority of the people. Taking down the Electoral College, I mean, there's two strategies for this. One is passing a constitutional amendment. The other is the interstate compact. The interstate compact seems like the most likely way to make this happen. Is this a project that Indivisible is working on? And if, and if not, why not? <laughs> yeah, it's really important. It's difficult, though, because you have to get the states to sign on, right, for it to become, um, mm-hmm. uh, for it to kick in. And right now we don't have the numbers in a lot of states. I think uh, the Republicans still have captured a majority of the state governorships. But there's actually a third route towards fixing the Electoral College, and that's by actually adding more seats to the House of Representatives. Um, that number is set by federal law. It's not in the Constitution, it's that 435 number. And it's been mm-hmm. stuck at 435 since the 1920s. Up until the 1920s, they've been steadily increasing the number of um, representatives in the House to match the increasing number of people that live in this country. And they stopped doing it in the 1920s. If you added more seats to the House, one, it's, it's a good policy because that way 
representatives would um, represent a smaller number of people, so they'd be more uh, responsive to constituent needs. But also, that's how they determine the number of electors that states get. It's the number of congressional districts in your state plus two senators. So if you were to add seats and divvy them up in more populous states, so, I don't know, split Chicago into five or six congressional districts instead of two, um, that would give Illinois more electors. Is there a movement to make this power. happen, Megan? Um, we're, we're looking into it for sure. It can be done through um, through legislation. You don't need a constitutional amendment to do it. I think there are some members of Congress who are interested. Nothing um, concrete yet, but it's for sure something that we've been thinking about. There's a very good op-ed that lays out the whole policy in the New York Times. People Google the bigger house. You can read more about it. And I think that there are members of Congress who are interested. We'll just have to wait and see what happens next year to see if it's actually something we might be able to accomplish. Definitely easier than doing a constitutional amendment, though. Amazing stuff. Megan Hatcher-Mays, uh, Director of Democracy Policy at Indivisible.org. Uh, Megan, thanks so much for dropping by. It's been great talking with you today. Thanks. I had a great time. Thanks for having me. Uh, my pleasure. And keep up the great work. Uh, Indivisible.org. Check it out. And thank you for being with us today. It's been a great day. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. Yes, you. There are things you can do. So get out there, get active, however you can. Even if it's just, you know, piping up from time to time on the social media. Tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.